Well, hey, welcome to Sojourn again. Glad that you're here this morning. It's always good to sing with you guys and uh, worship with you. And again, if you're new here, we'd love to meet you after the service. So please come and say hello. Uh, At Sojourn, every week we preach from the scriptures, from the Word of God. And uh, we're in the book of Matthew right now. If you need a copy of the Bible, if you don't have one with you, I would love to pass one out to you. Just raise your hand. We'll have a few folks that will come around and do that. Uh, We just think it's super important to have God's Word in your hand. And I know you can look it up on your phone, and you're more than welcome to do that as well. But there's something about having it in your hand, reading along uh, with us this morning together. We're coming together to God's Word. As I said, we sing together, and now we're going to come to the preaching of God's Word together. And if you don't actually own a copy of the Bible, we want you to take that home with you, uh, because we do believe this is God's Word. Uh, God's word to us. When we want to know God's will, we want to know more about who God is, we want to know who we are in relation to who God is, we're going to find it in the scriptures. And so we want you to have God's word in your hand. Before we open up to Matthew chapter 6 this morning, let's just go to the Lord in prayer though and ask him to bless uh, this time in his word. So let's pray together. God, we come before you this morning, probably at a lot of different places. Some of us have been uh, feeling close to you this week. Uh, Some of us have been distracted this week. Some of us are not even sure if you're real or that you give a rip about our lives. And so this morning, I just pray that as we come to your word, as we look at what we're going to focus on this morning and talking about prayer, that you would meet us in this place that you meet us in this time, that we would know your power and your presence. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would do a work in us today, that you would help our hearts and our minds to be attentive this morning. Lord, help us to focus on you, to hear from you today. And that because we've been here this morning, because we've gathered together as your people, that you would transform our lives not so that we can be feeling more spiritual, that we can be feeling more holy, we can be feeling more good about ourselves, but that we can be closer to you, that we can know you more than we did when we walked in here this morning. And so we just pray that you do that work for your glory and for our good. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Frank Abagnale Jr. was born April 27th, 1948 in New York. And between the ages of 15 and 21, he pulled off some of the most amazing cons in known history. He became an expert in bank and check fraud, where he could reproduce a check and make copies of it and copy them, forge checks uh, that they were so well done that most people, even banks and experts in that industry, couldn't notice the differences. He was so good at it, made tons of money, stole tons of money from doing this. One of the most amazing cons, though, that he pulled off was impersonating an airline pilot with the now-defunct Pan Am Airlines. He acquired a uniform. He just asked for one. They gave it to him. He forged an ID to be able to get past the different points of security. And he even forged a pilot's license to be able to get on airplanes. He deadheaded, so he flew for free. Pan Am estimates over a million miles and some 250 flights completely for free. He saw the world thanks to Pan Am. Now, all this craziness was chronicled in the movie Catch Me If You Can, if you've seen that movie. 
But the crazy thing about all of this, and the crazy thing to me, is how believable Frank Abingdale was, almost to the point where he believed himself to actually be doing and being these kinds of people. He impersonated being a lawyer, impersonated being a doctor at one point in time. It was kind of a, a fake it till you make it scheme. You know what I mean? Where you, you, you fake it like you know what you're doing, you know who you are until it actually becomes a reality or until you actually believe that you know what you're doing or somebody else believes you know what you're doing. The reality is for us in our own lives is that we can very much do the same thing, not just in business and life or maybe in school, but just even in our spiritual lives. We can have a fake it till you make it attitude. We can be imposters, cons, and have the mentality and start to believe something to be true about ourselves that isn't actually true. We come and we gather with the church, we sing the songs, we participate in community, we carry a Bible with us, maybe even we come to a prayer meeting, we maybe even pray out loud with others. And maybe someone told you to do these certain things. If you're a follower of Christ or you've at one time professed faith in Christ, someone told you, well, hey, if you're going to be a good Christian, this is what you need to do. Get yourself a Bible, Go to these things, sing these songs, go through the motions, and that's what you need to do. But they never really told you why. Maybe you still don't know why or know what the purpose is of what you're actually doing. And you know what the scary thing about all this for us is that we convince others and sometimes even convince ourselves that because of those things, we're spiritually mature people. Well, Jesus has been teaching throughout the series we've been in, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, about his kingdom. This inverted kingdom, this idea that Jesus' kingdom is upside down, it's completely different than the way the world operates, completely foreign to the way the world operates. And so he's teaching his kingdom people who've come close to him what life in the kingdom, what life close to the king actually looks like. And most of chapter 6 in Jesus' teaching here addresses something that the religious people of his day and our day need to pay attention to. It's something we can all struggle with, and it's this, that we can be tempted to practice our spirituality outwardly, but not for the purpose of coming close to the king, not for the purpose of knowing Jesus more, of having communion with him, but so that other people see it, that we're thought well of by others. Matthew 6, 1, we looked at this last week. This is kind of the heading for much of what Jesus says here in this section of his teaching. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness. What he means by that is just your life with Jesus, seeking to walk obediently with him. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Don't be fake, Jesus is saying. Don't be fake in your spiritual life. Don't do things so that others think that you're spiritually mature. So they think that you're just a spiritual rock star. Man, if I want to know what it looks like to follow Jesus, I just need to follow that guy. Don't do it so that people think well of or think that you're mature in your own life. What Jesus is doing, he's, he's calling kingdom people to do kingdom things, not to be thought well of by others so that they can come closer to him, come closer to the king not just be thought as spiritual people. Last week, Jesus talked about our generosity, what we do with our resources and our money, but this week, we're going to look at prayer. He turns to prayer. John Calvin, who is a 16th century French pastor and theologian, calls prayer the chief exercise of faith. The chief, chief exercise of faith. The main thing that we're going to do when it comes to our faith. And so what that means is that prayer is central to the Christian life. Prayer is central to life with 
King Jesus. But if we're honest, and I don't care how long you've been following Jesus, if it's been for a long, long time or not, I I would guess, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say 99%, maybe even 100% of us have struggled or do struggle when it comes to our prayer life, when it comes to praying. We've been taught about it, we've heard about it, we've listened to sermons on it maybe even, maybe we've read books about prayer, but we struggle We struggle to know what it means and what it looks like. And oftentimes, if we had someone actually assessing our praying, it could reveal the reality of our own hearts, the reality of our own lives, is that we're actually imposters. It can reveal that we're seeking to fake it till we make it. So maybe that's you right now. But listen, I'm not saying that to you this morning to shame you. I'm not saying that to you this morning to make you feel guilty. If you know, man, I do struggle with praying. I'm just going to get, you know, worked over this morning and made to feel bad about myself because of that. That's not my goal this morning. That's not what I want to do because here's the reality is I struggle. I I think something in my own life is that I I struggle in praying. And I'm a pastor, right? That's what I'm, one of the things I'm supposed to be doing is spending time in God's word and time in prayer. And I struggle. I struggle with the motivation of my heart. I struggle to want to do it. I struggle to know what to do in that. And so you're not alone if you feel that way. But I want to talk about it this morning, and we're going to talk about it this week and next week. We're going to look at this text for two weeks because I think it's super important for us. Jesus spends a big chunk of time talking to us about prayer. But again, the goal in this is not to shame you. Jesus isn't trying to say, man, if you're a rock star, this is how you pray. And if you're not living up to this, then you're a failure. Now, this is a gift to you. It's a gift to me. Because our Lord is coming to us and he's speaking to us and he's giving something to us to show us what it looks like for us, for you and for me, to be able to have communion with him, to have relationship with him and with the Father. And so my hope is, is that through this preaching of this text over the next two weeks is that God will use this to actually help us. It'll use us to actually shape us as a church, both as individuals and as a community together, to be a people of prayer. So, and so to begin this week, we're going to look at the what of prayer and the who of prayer. The what of prayer and the who of prayer. But let me say this before we jump into this. If you're not a Christian, if you don't call yourself a follower of Christ, please, let me just ask you this morning, don't check out. You may, to you, you may think, you know what, Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. And you're probably right. We, we can be a, a bunch of hypocrites. But, but hypocrisy is not so much saying one thing and doing another. It's that we do things outwardly, and sometimes our hearts don't match up with that. Being a follower of Christ is being a messy person. It doesn't mean we have our life all figured out, that we've figured everything out, that everything's perfect in our life, and so that's why we are followers of Christ. It's why we are Christians. When we say that we're following Jesus, the reason we follow Jesus is because we recognize how desperate we are for him. We're desperate for him to rescue us. We're desperate for him to renew us, to transform us, to restore us, to help us each and every day when we wake up and we recognize that we fall short that we need a Savior, that we need a King. And so I just want to invite you, if you don't yet know Jesus, just to journey with us this morning. But my guess is also for you, if you don't know Christ, is that at some point in your life, though, you have prayed. You've either prayed or you, you have thoughts on prayer, what you think prayer is or what it actually does. And so my hope is this morning as we talk about prayer this week and next week is that God will use this in your life to help you to take another step on your spiritual journey, to draw you closer to Him. So that's my hope for you this morning and over these next two weeks. So with that, let's jump into our text. We're going to look at this again over these next couple of Sundays. 
focus on a bit of it this morning and the rest of it next week. So may God bless the preaching of his word this morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. If you haven't already, you can flip over there. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5. We're going to read through verse 13. This is Jesus speaking to you this morning. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, if you've grown up in the church, you've been around the church for a while, you maybe have memorized this. It's what we often call the Lord's Prayer. But it's not so much the Lord's Prayer as the Lord teaching us about prayer, how to pray. And we're going to get into some of the details of what Jesus is talking about in that specific prayer section, probably more next week. But today, I want again, I want to focus on the what of prayer and the who of prayer. It was common with Jewish, Jewish religiosity to pray in public. And it would be praying in public in the synagogue when they gathered together. It would be certain times of prayer throughout the day. And so if that time came during the day, they would stop what they were doing on a street corner and pray. And Jesus isn't necessarily saying there's something wrong with doing those things. It's, it's okay to pray out loud. It's okay to pray corporately. What Jesus is most concerned about, though, is the motivation behind our praying. Notice he says, don't be like the hypocrites, not don't ever pray in public. So what are these hypocrites doing? See, what Jesus is doing, he's, he's confronting this, this outward spirituality. That's so much of this sermon that he's teaching on about his kingdom that his kingdom people are not concerned with checking boxes, looking as if they're spiritual, or thinking that they earn favor with God because they do spiritual things. Jesus is concerned with the heart of his people, that they're coming close to him, that they actually know him. But it was easy for religious people, for people who wanted to know God, to believe, well, listen, okay, people that are close to God pray, and so if I want to be close to God or if I want to show people that I'm close to God, then that's what I should do. If I want people to know that I'm a spiritual person, then I need to them to see me praying or hear me praying. And so oftentimes these religious leaders, these religious elite people would pray loudly and longly so that people would be impressed by what they had to say. And they would do this in the synagogue. They would do this on the street corner. But again, Jesus is addressing the why are they doing this? And it was to be seen by others. But Jesus says in doing that, they get their reward. Because the reality is for them, they actually got what they actually wanted in the first place was just to be seen by other people, to impress other people, to get the praise of men. But in doing that, they didn't get the ear of God. They got the reward there in that moment. So what is prayer? I mean, oftentimes, again, we can talk about prayer and maybe you've heard about prayer and we can have lots of conceptions about prayer, but what is it? Prayer at a base level is communing with God. It's speaking to God. It's speaking with Him. It's hearing from Him. Prayer is relationship. 
So what that means for you and me is that prayer is fundamentally not about you. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about our relationship with the living God. See, something I want us to understand this morning, Sojourn, something I want you to understand as your pastor that I also believe that God wants you to understand is that I don't care and God doesn't care about how well you pray. What I, what I want for you, what God wants for you is that you are praying. It's not about how well you do it. So what does Jesus call his kingdom people to? He says to pray in secret. Look at verse 6 again. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Notice a couple of things here. Jesus says, when you pray, not if you pray. When you pray. Those who have come close to the king, those that are a part of God's kingdom people are prayers. They want to talk to God. They want to commune with him. So Jesus isn't seeking to convince you that it's a good idea for you to pray or for you to have communion with God. He's seeking to shape your heart and your attitude when you do. But when you do, do so in secret. In other words, don't make a big deal about it. Don't let everybody know, hey, I'm going to pray. I'm going to be praying now. I'm done praying. It's not about letting everybody know about your spiritual life. Don't make a big deal about it. This is about you. This is about you and the Lord. It's not an opportunity for you to prove to other people that you're spiritually mature. See, something key we have to understand here about the what of prayer, and this is what Jesus is doing so often through this sermon as he's addressing your heart. What is your motivation in praying? Why are you doing it? Now, we need to be careful here because we can quickly trade one legalistic kind of hoop-jumping religiosity thing for another. And we need to be careful with that here. We can reject hypocritical spirituality and still miss the point of what Jesus is saying. So this isn't supposed to be legalistic in any way, shape, or form. In other words, you can, you can pray in public. You can pray in a coffee shop. You can pray with your church. You can pray in community group. You can pray with your family. You can even pray on a street corner. That's not the heart of what Jesus is getting at. But the desire and motivation of your heart should be for you to come to the Father in secret. Just you and Him. It doesn't matter if there's a thousand people around you or no one around you. What you're most concerned about is that you're coming before God. See, prayer is about getting God. It's about getting Him. It's about being with Him. Experiencing His power and His presence. Not the praise of men. And most often then, that's going to be found in the quiet, undistracted moments. So there's something practical to this. It it doesn't mean you can't pray in a coffee shop. It doesn't mean you can't pray with people around you. But oftentimes those times are distracting. I know at home if I'm trying to pray and my kids are running around, it's distracting. I'm not always focused. So it's better for me to be removed, to be in a quiet place to be able to do that. But you don't need to make that a legalistic thing. Like your prayers are more significant if you're in a closet with the door closed than they are if you're sitting out in the middle of Washington, D.C. on the mall praying. It's about getting God. It's about coming closer to Him. So the question we can ask ourselves is, do I actually love the secret place of prayer? Do I actually appreciate that? Do I value that? Do I long for that? When Jesus goes on, though, to give an additional exhortation against this wrong view of prayer, this wrong view of our spirituality, our life with Him. Look at verse 7. And when you pray, again, there he says, when you do this, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Gentiles is just a way of saying those that are uh, worshiping other gods besides 
the one true God. And so Jesus confronts both the praying of the religious elite and those who pray to some other God here. Because so often these prayers are just repetitious. They're meaningless prayers. Maybe for you, you've memorized what we call the Lord's Prayer and you could, you could rattle it off, but it doesn't have any significance for you. Maybe you grew up in other traditions where you memorized certain prayers or repeated certain prayers and there's no, there's no meaning to that for you. Or you came from another religious background or faith background and you just repeated words over and over again. And this can range from babbling to just repeating those phrases. But again, there's balance here. Don't hear me saying, don't hear Jesus saying this morning that it's not okay for you to pray for the same thing over and over again. In the same way over and over again, day after day. I can tell you right now, I pray every night before I go to bed that my kids are going to sleep through the night. Because I have three of them and they often wake up. And it makes for a long day for my wife and I. And so every night I ask God that he, would, that he would help them to sleep through the night. Every day I pray that God would give them ears to hear and eyes to see that they might actually know Jesus. Live their lives for him. And I think God's honored by that. But the problem is, is thinking that because I pray the same thing over and over again, because I pray it in a certain way, that God's more inclined to hear me. See, Jesus is rebuking mindless mechanical repetition, not consistent imploring God that flows from a heart that longs for God to move and work in our lives. So I think a trap that many of us can fall into, and what Jesus is getting at here is that our prayer, that we believe that our prayer is effective when we say the right words in the right way. It can become formulaic for us. So we can think, well, if I pray, I've been praying about this particular thing for a while. God doesn't seem to be answering me, at least in the way that I want him to. So maybe I'm doing it wrong. Maybe I need to change what I'm saying. Maybe I need to change how I'm doing this. And then God will pay attention to me. Then God will listen to me. But that is not the what of prayer. The what of prayer is that we're praying to a God, the one true God, as Jesus says, who knows what you need before you even ask him. I mean, how amazing is that? Before you even ask him. See, Jesus is calling his people to pray in a way where their mind and their mouth and their heart are engaged with one another. They're engaged with one another before holy God. But here's an additional thing that I think you and I need to be challenged with this morning, especially if you uh, are more spiritually mature, if prayer is a part of your life on a regular basis. And that's that even in private prayer, we can still be putting on a show. Even in our private prayer, we can still be putting on a show. We can come to prayer in a quiet place. We've got our Bible out. We've got our prayer journal out. Whatever it is that you do when you pray. But when you come to pray, you're just listening to yourself. You're never allowing God to listen, never waiting to see how God hears and how he responds. You and I can be incessant talkers, oftentimes just babblers. And so when we're done, whether we've prayed for five minutes or 50 minutes, we feel good about our prayer. We feel like our prayer's been heard, namely by us. And so we have that reward. We've checked our box off. But in that, even in that moment, we're still missing the whole object and focus and love and relationship of the Father, never actually and truly communing with Him. And that gets to the very heart of prayer. See, the what of prayer starts with the who of prayer. The what of prayer starts with the who of prayer, and that leads to our second point. The who of prayer. Who is God to you? Who is God to you? 
how you pray and if you pray reveals a lot about how you'd answer that question. Who is God to you? See, Jesus calls his kingdom people not to be like the hypocrites who pray for the praise of men or the Gentiles who heap up words thinking that that'll position them better with God if they pray in a certain direction or if they pray certain words that God will hear them more. Instead, he calls his people to pray in secret and pray to the Father who knows what they need before they even ask. And so then Jesus gives us an example of how to pray. This is not Jesus giving us a formula of how to pray. He's giving us an example of how we're to pray. And next week, we're going to jump more into the details of what Jesus says in these following verses. But I want to jump into the first line of what Jesus says because it sets the tone of everything else. He says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Now this may not be, be very monumental for us, Again, if you've been around the church for a while, you, you know that we refer to and call God our Father. And so it may not be a big deal that Jesus would say this, but for Jesus' primarily Jewish audience at this, this original group of people listening to him, this is a huge deal. Because they didn't pray to God as Father. And in some ways, that was almost too personal. It, was, it was almost could be seen as irreverent to come to God in that way. They would pray to God often, but not refer to God as Father. And so Jesus is doing something significant here. I don't know if you noticed that even just these few verses that we read, 5 through 13, Jesus refers to God as Father four times. If we go back to the verses right before that, it's two more times. So through verses 1 through 13, he's called God Father six times. Six times. Jesus is never unintentional with his words. He's always purposeful. He's always particular with what he's saying and how he's saying it. And he's referring to God as Father in the context of talking about prayer. I mean, this is one of the most significant things that sets our faith apart from so many others. I mean, isn't it interesting that other religions pray, other faiths pray? Prayer is not unique to Christianity. Maybe you have a coworker or a friend or a family member. Or maybe you're not a follower of Christ again, but you still pray. You come from a background where you're familiar with it. The core issue before we get to the what of prayer, though, is who are we praying to? That's what sets Christianity apart from other faiths. See, we need to understand that the content of our prayers is linked to the depth of our understanding of who God is. The content of our prayers, it's linked to our understanding of the depth of who God is. Who do we believe him to be? And Jesus here is saying, pray to the Father. Pray to our Father. Pray to your Father. That shapes how we pray. It shapes what we pray. See, prayer is meant to be communion with our Heavenly Father. Father communicates relational closeness. I mean, think about this. God could have designed and described our relationship with Him in a, in a ton of different ways. He could refer to us as servants or slaves or citizens. And at times He does call us all of those things. But there's something significant about the fact that God, that the God we pray to, is our Father. As one scholar says, whatever it may mean for God to be all-powerful, ever-present, all-knowing, eternal, infinite, none of these descriptions are more important or significant than Jesus teaching us to address the Father. Now, why is that the case? Let's look at and think about what's going on here. If we come to God as Father, that means that we're coming to Him as children. We're coming to Him as children. 
And so the kind of praying that Jesus is calling his kingdom people to is prayer that communicates dependence. It's prayer that communicates childlike faith. It's prayer that communicates vulnerability. It's prayer that communicates that I don't have to have all my words right or even know exactly what I'm trying to say to God to come before him. It's prayer that that communicates that I believe that God actually loves me, that he actually cares about me. See, the fact that Jesus teaches us to come to God as Father communicates to us that God cares about the intricate details of your life. Those are not unimportant to him. They're not insignificant to him. He cares about the smallest details of your lives. I'm a dad, like I said, I've got three kids. And when my almost three-year-old wants to tell me about his day, wants to tell me what he did, that he peed or pooped on the potty and didn't wet his pants today. We're working on that right now. That he got to see a digger or a big truck outside of our house that day. No matter what it is, as insignificant as it might seem, as, as childlike as his perception of the world might be, I care. I, I want to listen to him. When my six-year-old wants to tell me about what he did at school or wants to show me another one of his Lego creations, I care, I listen, I'm interested. Why? Not because they're articulate. Not because they're telling me something that I don't already know. They're not, they're not giving me new information necessarily. They're not informing me about something that I don't already know. The reason why is because they're my kids. Because they're my sons. Because I love them and I care about them. And I don't get this perfect. At times I am probably annoyed at them. At times I don't show interest. At times I don't communicate attentive love to them. But the good news of what Jesus is telling you and me this morning is that we don't pray to a father who's modeled after imperfect earthly fatherhood. We pray, we come before, we communicate, we commune with our perfect heavenly father. And he cares for you and he cares about every detail of your life. There's nothing insignificant that you can't bring before him. Man, that should blow our minds That should floor us. That the God we come before in prayer, the God we come before with everything in our life is a God who we call Father, our Father. And it's our Father in heaven. He's the God who's in the heavens and does all that he pleases, Psalm 115 says. He's the creator and sustainer of the universe. He's eternal and magnificent and perfect and holy and other. And yet, yet, you and I can come before him as Father. As, our chi- as his child, as his son, as his daughter. He has time for you. He's not too busy for you. See, Jesus is making a significant point here. When he talks about who we pray to, he's showing us that God is both transcendent and imminent. Transcendent meaning he's, he is high and lifted up. He's incomprehensible. We can't wrap our brains, our minds around who God is. He's huge and enormous and so significant We can't fully understand that he's separate from us, but at the very same time, God is imminent. He's close to us, within reach of us. And when we come to him in prayer, we can acknowledge both of those things. He is our heavenly father, the God who knows every detail of your life down to how many hairs are on your head. And at the very same time is the God who called all of creation into existence by the word of his mouth. That is amazing. We can come to him in that way. Just this past week, I was talking to uh, a a couple in our church who's recently relocated from Colorado. And 
they were talking about the fact that, man, people are like, why did you leave Colorado? Like, why did you come here, East Coast? Like, what's up with that, you know? Like, there's lots of big mountains. We just have hills here that we call mountains. You actually have real mountains there. Like, why would you do that? The same thing can happen for us if you've lived around here for a long time. I grew up in the D.C. area, and it still blows my mind that people take vacation days to come here. Right? I mean, like, you can go down to D.C., and people are walking around the monuments, like, taking pictures, and they're following the person with the flag in front of them. And I'm like, man, this is, like, this is their vacation time. Like, I could come down here any time I want to, and I've been down there a ton of times. When I was growing up, the, really the only time we went down there was when we had family in town that wanted to see all this stuff. We live on the East Coast. It doesn't take us long to get to the beach. If you live in the middle of America, the beach is, a, is a, an anomaly to you. You've heard about it. Maybe you've seen pictures of it, but actually like put your feet in the sand of the ocean is amazing to you. But when we live so close to it, we were around these things all the time. It loses its luster, doesn't it? Just it's familiar to us. We don't think it's a big deal anymore. Is that you, Christian? When, when you think about the fact that you can come before God as your father, does that amaze you anymore? Has it lost its luster for you? That you don't just come before Almighty God the creator of everything, that you come as a son, that you come as a daughter before your father who cares for you. We see an important question we have to ask this morning is how can we actually do that? How can we come before God as father? In other words, does God always relate to us as father? The simple answer to that is no, he doesn't. Because the reality is for all of us is that we've rebelled against God. We've sought to be the Lord of our lives. We've sought to call the shots in our life, to be in charge, to be the king of our own life. And the Bible calls that sin, that rebellion sin, it's separated us from God. It's put us at distance from him. It's caused us not to be friends with God, not to be family with God, but to be enemies of God. Enslaved to our sin, enslaved to our rebellion. But the good news is that God, before the foundation of the world, chose to reconcile the world to himself, and he would do so at a great cost to himself. See, God so loved the world that he sent his son, his only son, Jesus, to dwell among us as one of us in order to rescue us and reconcile us to himself. Rescuing us from our sin, rescuing us from ourselves. He gave his only son to be a sacrifice for us. Jesus lived a perfect life. He lived in perfect obedience and perfect communion with his father. He lived that perfect life for you and for me because we can't. And then Jesus died a sacrificial death, taking on the punishment that you and I deserve for our sin. The punishment we deserve for our rebellion against God, our sin, all of it, past, present, and future, was nailed to the cross with Jesus. And he declared at that moment, it is finished. Three days later, God rose him from the grave. He rose again, alive. So we need to understand this morning, this can't be lost on us this morning, that you and I can pray like this. We can pray to God as our Father because Jesus made a way. This is His Father. This is His Father. And through the cross, He becomes our Father. See, the Father and the Son have always been in relationship with one another along with the Spirit. Jesus has always communed with the Father, and so praying is learning to enjoy something that Jesus has always enjoyed. Learning to enjoy something Jesus has always enjoyed. The fact that God is our Father through Christ His Son is one of the most healing doctrines in all of Scripture. 
for some of you this morning, I think just, just coming to God as Father can be healing for you. Because maybe your earthly father was not a good father. You didn't have a good relationship with him. It may be even difficult for you this morning to hear that God is your father. Because that conjures up all kinds of things for you, lots of different emotions for you. Maybe your father was absent or abusive or aloof, uncaring, unloving, uninvolved, uninterested, unknown. And I just want you to hear something in this moment. Right now, I want you to hear me on this. If that's you this morning, God is not like that. God is not like that. He is an ever-present father, an ever-loving father, an everlasting father. He will not leave you or forsake you. He will not abandon you. He will not deride you. He will not shame you. He will not reject you. He loved you so much that he sent his son to die in your place to make you his child. That's not something you can mess up. That's not something you can push away. God is there and he is a good father to you. So listen, God could have saved you from your sin. He he could have declared you right before his eyes and he could have left it at that. And we should be thankful for that. Our minds should still be blown. We should spend all of eternity praising God that he would do something like that. But he went further still. He he didn't just bring you into his kingdom. He didn't just bring you into his presence. He welcomes you to his table as his son, as his daughter, as his child. See, when you and I understand and believe that God is our father in that way, it changes the way we pray. Not, not, not that he's just Lord, not that he's just the almighty God, not that he's just the sovereign creator of all things, but that he's our Father. It changes the way we pray. I hope it does that for you today. I don't, again, I don't know how long you've been a Christian, if you are a Christian or not. I hope that encourages you and changes the way you pray this week, that when you wake up tomorrow morning and you seek to engage your day and engage God, that the thought would cross your mind afresh for you that you're coming before a Father who cares for you. See, prayer doesn't make you more accepted by God. Maybe your dad, you had to earn favor with your dad. You had to impress him in your life. But prayer doesn't do that. You're not coming before God to impress him, to become more accepted. Prayer isn't religious duty. It's a delight. It's a delight. Prayer acknowledges that you've already been accepted in and through what Jesus has done for you. See, we're not then merely creatures before God. We are children And so we aren't climbing a ladder trying to convince God of something, trying to show him, hey, this is why you should do this. Will you please act on my behalf in this way? We come to him as father in relationship. He already knows what you need. So something we can think about prayer differently, a way we can think about it differently is that it's not something you do. Don't focus on that. Focus on who you're praying to, who you're praying to, who you're coming before. Again, some of you are in different places, though. Like I said earlier, many people pray. And that's so interesting to me. That again, different backgrounds, different faiths pray. We have a friend of of ours, Amy and myself have a friend who who doesn't believe in God. She's told us very clear she doesn't believe. And sometimes she's even antagonistic towards the thought of God. Adamantly so. But she said, you know, it's weird, though. At times I find myself talking to someone. I find myself praying. I mean, I don't believe in God, but I'm driving along and I find myself talking to someone. Is that you? Why, why does she do that? Why do you do that? I think the answer is because you were made for another world. 
You were made to be in relationship with the living God. Do you know, if you're honest with yourself this morning, in the depths of your heart, that you are not your own? You're not your own? I want you to hear me on this this morning. The good news that we believe, that we proclaim at this church to you today is that there is a father who sent his son to take on your sin and raise him again from the grave to make you his own, to call you his son, to call you his daughter, to adopt you into his family. Listen, you don't have to know a lot about him. You just have to know that you need him. You don't need to know a whole lot about him. You don't have to have all the answers. You just need to know that you need him. So friend, would you come to him today if that's you? Would you come to him today and start that relationship with him today that he might truly be your father? Sojourn, our God is not a God that's manipulated through our praying. It's a father who already knows. As another scholar said, if God did not know what I need, then I would have to think about how I should tell him, what I should tell him, whether I should tell him. But when you and I remember God's kindness and his open arm fatherliness, I want us to go to him, to know and believe that he's willing and attentive and he has adopted you into his family and you can come before him with anything. I love when my kids come close to me. I love when they want to sit with me and talk with me. I love when they want to ask questions and engage with me because I love them. Prayer then is the request of a child to the heart of a father. My kids come to me and ask for things. But again, my willingness to listen to them is not based on how articulate they are or how well they make their requests. I listen to them because I love them. Now, that doesn't mean I always give them what they want. And we're going to talk more about that later because Jesus talks more about that later in chapter 7. But in love, I always want to listen to them because it's about my relationship with them. So just know again, the articulateness of your prayer is not what causes God to listen to you or care for you. You can stumble and stammer over your words. You can come before God with incomplete thoughts. Romans chapter 8 says it's the Spirit helps us actually to pray when we don't know what to pray. We can come before him in peace and vulnerability because we know that he's our good father. The father who sent his son, the father who raises the dead, that is the God we pray to. So whether things are good right now for you in your life or maybe you're in a, a place of despair and hopelessness, my encouragement to all of us this morning, no matter where you find yourself, is recognizing that your hope is not in an ethereal God. It's in our Father in heaven. He's our only hope today and always. And the gift that God gives to us is that when we come to him in secret, he is in secret. He's not hidden. He's not distanced. But when we come to him in that still and quiet place, we come into a room full of treasure where the glory of God shines on our lives and it restores us and it, it transforms us and it comforts us and it confronts us and it encourages us and it, it makes us new. So, Sergeant, I want us to be a people of prayer. I want us to be a people of prayer both individually in our own spiritual lives and in a church collectively together, corporately as a family. I want us to be a people of prayer. John Calvin again says, Believers do not pray with the view of informing God about things unknown to him or of exciting him to do his duty or of urging him as though he were reluctant. On the contrary, they pray in order that they may arouse themselves to seek him, they may, that they may exercise their faith in meditating on his promises, 
that they may relieve themselves from their anxieties by pouring in them their anxieties into his heart in a word that they may declare that from him alone they hope and expect both for themselves and for others all good things. Prayer is both honest and it's hopeful. So let's go to our, before our Father to our Father in honesty and hopefulness. Psalm 145, 18 says, The Lord is near all who call on him. So together as a church, let's call on him to do more than we can ask or imagine for his glory and for our good because he is our Father in heaven who loves and cares deeply for you and for his kingdom more than we can comprehend. And to that we can say amen. As we come to the table this morning, we come to be reminded and refreshed in the reality of what Jesus has purposefully and particularly done for you and for me. He lived a life that you could not live. He died a death that you and I deserve to die, taking on our sin and our shame to restore us and rescue us. And so as we come to the table this morning, we are partaking in a family meal. Bread broken, cups passed, signifying what Jesus has done for you, that his body was broken for you, that his blood was shed for you to make a way for you and I to be adopted into the family of God, that his father might become our father. And so as you come to the table this morning to eat the bread and drink the cup, may it point your mind and your heart to the fact that because of what Christ has done, God is your father. And because God is your father, you can come to him for help and hope in prayer. And again, those of you that are not followers of Christ, we're glad that you're here today. But I just want to ask you, if you're, if you're not yet there, if you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, I just want to ask you not to come forward to take communion. This doesn't mean anything to you. It's not, it has no significance in your life. It doesn't make you closer to God. What's going to bring you closer to God is trusting in Christ. And so I want to invite you to do that. I want you to take Jesus today. Again, you don't have to know a lot about him. You don't have to know everything about him. You just have to know that you need him. And if you know you need Jesus today, just hang out in your seat and just pray. Confess your need for Christ to save you. That you believe that he did die for you on the cross for your sin. And that God ro- brought him back to life, rose again from the grave three days later. And that he is Lord. You can start that relationship with Jesus today. And we'd love to journey with you in there. That's why this church is here in Fairfax. We want people to know Jesus and follow Jesus and experience the riches of God's grace. And so if that's you this morning, just hang out in your seat. Just pray. Then go talk to somebody afterwards. Come talk to me. I'd love to pray with you, talk with you. Anybody else that's a part of this church, go to a community group this week. We want to journey with you in that. And those of you that will come forward, you can come to the front or towards the back. Tear off a piece of bread, take a small cup to drink, and what Jesus has done for you will be spoken over you this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and just simply ask, would you help us? Would you help us this morning to grasp the what and the who of prayer? Would you help us this week, as we go from this place, would you help us to wrap our minds around the fact that you, the creator of all the universe, of all the world, is a father we can come before like a child? Would you help us to come before you in dependence? Would you help us to come before you in vulnerability, to be honest and hopeful as we come to you? And know that you care, believe that you care about every detail of our lives. Even in the moments, Father, when we feel like you're not getting the answer that we want. Well, we trust that you're good. 
that you're a good father towards us, that you love us, that you have the best in mind always for us, even when things are dark, even when things are difficult. Father, this morning we thank you that Jesus has made a way for you and I and all of us to be reconciled to you, that you might be our Father. So may we celebrate that now as we come to the table, as we eat and drink of these elements. May you refresh our hearts. May you encourage us this morning. And may we together respond in singing loudly and thankfully in celebration of the goodness of your grace. We love you, Lord. We thank you that you love us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.